One of my favorite pastimes is thinking about the idea of time travel. And I'm alone. And that's okay. Uh, as I would listen to music from decades before I was born, I used to think, what if I could go back in time and write the greatest record of all time with my hit songs, Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> my hit songs, Stairway to Heaven, What a Wonderful World, All the Single Ladies. I would go back in time and I would write these amazing songs. And I would think, like, when would I have to go back? When would I have to... Uh, be in time to meet Elton John, which if you're wondering, it's November 17th, 1970 in New York City. Uh, when would I need to meet the Beatles? I'd have to be in the UK in 1964. And how, if I could do that now, if I could go back in time and then come back now, my life would be radically different because I would be playing stadiums and concerts and sold out tours with my hit songs. And if you didn't think I was weird before, this little look into my brain should clarify any doubt you previously held. But this idea of time travel is not unique to me, seeing as Hollywood's been monopolizing on the idea for years with movies like Back to the Future, X-Men Days of Future Past, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, uh, even this year's Avengers Endgame, the book, The Time Machine, all of it, it has time travel in it. And if you're unfamiliar with the idea of time travel, it's, it's basically this, that somebody from the present goes back to the past and fixes or alters something so as to change the future. If you can harness the technology, if you could go back in time and just make a few simple changes to something that happened previously, your future will be radically different. And I tell myself all the time, this cannot happen. You cannot do this. Although, some scientists do think that with the block universe theory, you might be able to do it. And you can look that up with big words and complex ideas. But this notion of time travel got me thinking about the past, the present, and the future. And how they're all connected. That's the thing with each one of these works of fiction. Every single one of them, maybe they're different with the, with the terminology or anything like that, but all of them have this in common, that the past is connected to the present, and the present is connected to the future. What you do in one is going to affect the other, which will then affect the other. And as we continue in our This I Believe series, we're going to come to the focal point of the Christian faith and its past, its present, and its future reality. And that focal point is the resurrection. Pray with me real quick. Jesus, before we say another word, we pause and we metaphorically stand not at the base of a cross, but at an empty tomb. Teach us by your Spirit how great you are. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Like we said, we're in this series called This I Believe, where we're covering the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Doctrine. And just for recap, let's read it in its entirety. It starts out, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, again, rose from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 
And today as we discuss the resurrection, we're going to look at it from three different points of view. We're going to look at it in the past, we're going to look at it in the present, and we're going to look at it in the future. And here's the big idea of thoughts. If you're taking notes, this is the big idea that's going to sum up everything we discussed this morning. The resurrection is a past event changing present circumstances that have future implications. I'll say it again. The resurrection is a past event changing present circumstances that have future implications. The first section that, men that mentions resurrection in the doctrine is the third day he rose again from the dead. Now we, of course, are talking about the claim of the resurrection of Jesus after being dead, buried, descended into hell, as Steve went into, and the third day he rose from the dead. In my opinion, that's a long weekend. Now, the resurrection of Jesus is one of the few miracles and events mentioned in all four Gospels in some way. The accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John differ on the information. They differ on the perspective, and a lot of people have used those differences as proof for contradiction. A difference of opinion is not necessarily a contradiction, because all four of the Gospels do not differ on the reality, and the reality is that Jesus was dead and is now alive. Now, biblical and Jewish oral tradition hold that Jesus is not the first human to be resurrected from the dead. The widow's son at Zarephath in 1 Kings, the Shunammite woman's son with Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4, the man at Elisha's tomb in 2 Kings 13, the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7, Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5, Lazarus in John chapter 11. Some even believe that in Acts chapter 14, when Paul was stoned and then got up, some believe that he was actually dead and the apostles praying over him led to a resurrection. And while Jesus is not the first person to ever be resurrected from the dead, he is the first person to predict it. The Gospels are filled with Jesus' teaching and preaching that not only would he die, not only would he tell you the precise circumstances and situations around that death, but that that death would be short-lived, three days to be exact. And he says that in Matthew 16. And the claim that Jesus died was buried, and is resurrected, is a challenge. It challenges the physical empires of Rome because it says that the opposing political party has lost. It challenges the religious leaders of the day because it says that the religious system has no control. It challenges the laws of physics because, according to science, dead things don't become undead. It challenges the idea that there is no life after death. It challenges the idea that Jesus didn't mean what he said. And I say that in air quotes. Some people say, oh, Jesus didn't really mean that. Jesus really meant this. This isn't exactly what he meant. Well, Jesus said he would die. Jesus said he would come back after three days. He meant what he said. It also challenges the idea of who is Lord, as Alan talked about last week. Now, some in secular society, but also in Christian circles, do not believe in a physical resurrection. They adhere that Jesus' resurrection is spiritual only. Yes, some people have disbelief. Ag agnostics, atheists, 
But also some Christian circles do not believe in a physical resurrection, that a man physically died, physically resurrected. And you need to know that. That some people believe that is, it is symbolic. So that begs the question, how do we know? How do we know that after three days, according to this creed, Jesus really resurrected from the dead? Well, within the Bible, we believe the testimony that he appeared to Mary Magdalene, his mother Mary, and Joanna. We believe that he appeared to two men on a road to Emmaus. We believe that he appeared to 500 people at once, according to 1 Corinthians 15. We believe that he appeared to the disciples twice, once without Thomas and once with. We also believe he appeared to James and to Paul on the Damascus Road. But I would challenge you when faced with that question, whether from people who do not believe in the resurrection or even within your own heart, do not say because the Bible says so. When, when that question arises, don't say because it's in the Bible, because people that don't believe in the resurrection also don't believe in the Bible. So that's a self-defeating response. Well, maybe you could go into the historical of evidence that this is the town and this is the hill and this is where the cross was and this is where the tomb is, and that would be great if we could find it. We still are not 100% accurate where that tomb is. But I think the greatest proof for the resurrection is summed up in this sentence. No one dies for a lie. I looked up what goes into an FBI interrogation, because you can find anything on YouTube. Some, some interrogations last 15 to 20 hours, some days long you need to be prepared with a good understanding of the facts. There are information games and gaps that you play to trick your subject into accidentally revealing information. Uh, there's the good cop, bad cop routine. Deals are made at certain points to uh, incentivize response. And all of this is done, all of, all of this is done to gather information, to simply obtain information. I doubt that the inquisition of centuries of angry mobs, juries, judicial systems, governmental powers had the same tactics or the same patience when dealing with the martyrs of our faith. When asking if Jesus had really risen from the dead, instead they used torture mechanisms, they used crucifixion, they used family massacre. You see, death was not a hard decision for these rebellious bandits that we call the heroes of our faith but nobody dies for a lie. I was talking with Rocco, and he pointed me to this guy named Norman Geisler. He has this quote. It's phenomenal. He says, Why would the apostles lie? Liars always lie for selfish reasons. If they lied, what was their motive? And what did they get out of it? What they got out of it was misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. No one dies to keep a lie alive. You're going to tell me, the, the proverbial you, you're going to tell me that the martyrs, Jesus' apostles, Jesus' family, the men and women of the faith, the missionaries, all these people are keeping alive the biggest hoax in history? Giving their lives, their finances, their reputations for over 2,000 years? Either he's alive or we are to be most pitied. And that's 1 Corinthians 15. The biggest case for the resurrection is not an empty tomb. It's the gospel. It's been transforming lives for over 2,000 years. 
James Kennedy is quoted by saying, the Grand Canyon wasn't caused by an Indian dragging a stick, and the Christian church wasn't caused by a myth. I'm in the marketing field for work, and in my free time, I host a podcast that some of you listen to. Hashtag dismantle podcast. Did you know how hard it is to market an idea? For people to listen to it, adopt it, then spread it, and get excited about it? It's really hard. I spend my nights on Instagram scrolling and trying to figure out how to generate traffic towards my content. And in 2019, it's not simple. But let me tell you what has worked. The only thing that, that I found that works for my podcast and in the marketing field, authenticity. Why am I telling you this? I don't think that the disciples would have generated a following that lasts 2,000 years if they weren't convinced of it as fact. If it wasn't true, if it wasn't real. We believe that the resurrection is real. And what does it really say? Let's for a second just, just pause and let's, let's say for the sake of the discussion that everybody in the room and listening to this believes that Jesus really resurrected from the dead after being dead for three days. What is the statement that that reality makes? Well, it's more than just a fulfilled prophecy, although it is that. But it is the very center of our faith. It's funny, we've been doing this series now for a month, and, uh, and everybody who has gotten up has said, this is the center of our faith. Well, I'm going to hop on the bandwagon and say, this is the center of our faith. The resurrection is the center of our faith. Now, some would say, well, no, the crucifixion is the center of our faith. The incarnation is the center of our faith. Well, I would disagree because the cross doesn't mean anything without the empty tomb. Hundreds of people were crucified. The incarnation is amazing, but that's how he came. It's not why he came. The resurrection is a declaration of defeat over death. Jesus says it in the book of Revelation. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. Do you know the position of power you need to be in to hold the keys to something? I hold the keys to my car. I hold the keys to my house. That means you can't get in. That means you can't control it. And Jesus says, I hold the keys to death because he was dead and now he's alive. And church, if he didn't rise from the dead, we're screwed. We're still in our sins. Think about that for a second. We are still separated from God. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and also your faith is empty. If he simply died and didn't resurrect, conquering sin and death, there's no reason to be here. There's no reason for me to be talking about it and no reason for you to be listening. Because a Jesus that's still buried in the grave is not a Jesus that can do anything for my life today. A dead Jesus can't offer living life. He can't offer abundant life. He can't offer living water, like he said. A dead Jesus can't offer forgiveness of sins, past, present, or future. Because it takes a living Savior to offer new life. And this is the hope we have. Hebrews 6 tells us that, that our center, our foundation, the point of the life that we now live is in the power of and because of the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Let's get a little Pentecostal here. Now, that center focal point 
of our Christian faith is not a one-and-done event that merely occurred 2,000 years ago. It is a present reality, and it transcends time. Another one of those songs that I would pretend that I wrote if I went back in time would be Message in a Bottle by the Police. Because when I listen to Message in a Bottle, I don't hear it as 30-year-old Joey. I hear it as 14-year-old Joey in Tijuana, Mexico on my first missions trip. You ever have that? You listen to a song and you're immediately back where you were the first time you heard it? I can smell it. I can see it. I can visualize it. Show of hands, how many of you can do that with a certain song? It's fascinating the power that music has that it can transcend time and elicit memories and senses and emotions. And a bit like music, the resurrection can do that too. We just sang it, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. The past aspect has a present effect. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we then and now are resurrected. Because think about it, anything that can die can now resurrect. Not just spiritually, but think about it, every possible way that you can imagine. Anything that can die can now resurrect because of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 4. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because of the curse of sin, everything is dead. Your mind is dead. Your emotions are dead. Your flesh is dead. Your desires are dead. Your good works, your best intentions, everything is dead. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, all of these things have now been made alive. But how have they been made alive? In Christ. So when we read through the New Testament, we see this phrase show up often. In Christ, through Christ, by Christ. And what that speaks of is the resurrection. So again, this isn't the closing chapter in the life of Jesus. This is the end of the prelude and the continuation of your story. The verses that speak of in Christ are speaking to the present daily reality of the power of that resurrection and how it transforms your life. Here's some examples. Romans 3.24, all believers are justified and made upright and in right standing with God freely and gratuitously by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. We love this one, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who, who strengthens me. Through Christ is because of the resurrection. These aren't just cute platitudes that point to our Savior's work. They're speaking of the power of the resurrection in your life and mine and how it plays out right now. It points to the fact that this is an ongoing miracle. And what does the resurrection bring us? Yes, it's a past event. Yes, we see that there's work in it. But what does it actually do for us? Well, it brings us hope. We mentioned before that there's a man named Jairus, and he has a daughter in Mark chapter 5. It's also in Luke chapter 7. 
And Jairus comes to, to Jesus and he says, my daughter is dying, please come, please do something. And, and Jesus goes with him because Jairus believes in the power of healing through Jesus. It says on the way there, someone comes from the house and says, don't bother Jesus anymore because your daughter is dead. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. Spoiler alert. They arrive and they hear people mourning and wailing. And this is what Jesus says. Stop wailing. She is not dead, but asleep. So first of all, when Jesus says something, we should take it as reality. When someone says something that resurrects from the dead, we should listen to everything he says. And I think that we can take it as fact. Because as I was reading this, as I was studying this, I physically felt hope from reading that. That something is about to happen in the life of this girl. Jesus says that things that are, are actually not. What you think is the obstacle of your situation is not an obstacle, but it's actually an opportunity for the power of the resurrection. Something that isn't alive is being called to life by Jesus. But notice what the next verse says. They laughed at him, knowing she was dead. If the Bible was written today, you'd see a little footnote that says, insert sarcasm. You see, people who don't believe in the resurrection laugh at what God is trying to do because they don't see opportunity, they see obstacle. And it makes sense, right? How silly would it be to say to somebody that something as permanent as death is not a period but a comma in the life of somebody when you've never experienced resurrection? It doesn't make sense. Because there's no reason to hope in something that you don't believe to be possible. And when we realize the power of the resurrection, that it's not just a past event, but that it's a present reality, until we believe in the power of that resurrection as the source of the life that we live now, we won't look at things with hope. We won't look at things with opportunity. All we'll see is obstacles. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 19? With God, all things are possible. So because of the resurrection, we don't see obstacles. We see opportunity for God to move. That relationship that will never move past where it is, that's possible because of the resurrection. That marriage that's on the brink of divorce, that's possible because of the resurrection. The custody battle that your neighbors are fighting, that cancer diagnosis, your bad temper, uh, your addictions, your past mistakes, you name it, it's all possible because of the resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean we just get whatever we want because we slap on the bumper sticker of new life. But what that does mean is that we conduct ourselves with hope, knowing that the worst possible situation has already happened and it's been defeated. Amen? Amen. Amen. And like we said, when Jesus says something, we take it as reality. And he says in John chapter 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. Not just then, but now. And there's another piece of the Apostles' Creed and the third facet that we'll look at this morning. It says, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, amen. Now, we're not going to dive into this a ton. We're, we're more setting up where Rocco is going to take us at the end of next month with eternal life. But we looked at the resurrection in the past. We see how it's a present reality in our life today. And so then we have to do some deduction. There's a past aspect. 
and a present reality. There's got to be a future component. And I think it's important that before we touch on this idea of future resurrection, we have to address the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is this question. What happens to us when we die? What happens to us when we die? Well, we'd all probably very quickly say, we go to heaven. But that idea, that very American idea of going to an ethereal floaty plane with angels and cherubs is not one that Jesus ever propagates. It's not found in the early church doctrine. It's not in this creed or any others that I've read. It's not found anywhere specifically in the Bible. So if we were to simply read the Bible cover to cover and we reject all other sources of commentary and input, the information never points to a heaven that we preach about in America. So where does that idea come from? I personally think it's a mix of ideas. We probably think John 14, where he says, I go and prepare a place for you. We probably think 2 Corinthians 5, absent with the body and present with the Lord. We think paradise, as Jesus mentioned to the thief on the cross. We probably mix in revelation imagery and end times eschatology. And maybe we mix in a little Dante's Inferno and other apocalyptic literature. But the problem is that all of those verses have context. And if we cherry pick them, put them together and create a new theology about what heaven is, we're not only not biblical, but we're misleading others and ourselves. For example, the absent from the body verse, when you translate it, it never assumes that one comes after the other. The original language simply implies that there's a life after this one. I mean, even look at the conjunction. It doesn't say, I, I heard it this way growing up, absent from the body is present with the Lord. That's not what it says. It says and. Jesus doesn't talk about heaven, at least not the way we do. And Paul doesn't talk about it either. What they both talk about is resurrection. 1 Corinthians 6.14, God has not only raised up the Lord, but will also raise us up in his power. Jesus speaks of the resurrection of the dead in Matthew 22 when he's talking to uh, the, the Sadducees about marriage. He also mentions it in John 5. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 52, the dead will be raised. And I want to pause and say that this idea of thinking about what happens when we die is very natural. It's not wrong. This ideal of crafting what we think heaven is comes because we as humans need comfort. We need comfort in the, in the loss of those we love, and, and when we don't know what comes next, we need comfort. But Paul never commands us to take hope and comfort that our final destination is in heaven. What he does command us to take hope in is the resurrection. Let's read it. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as those who do not have hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still left 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage or comfort each other with these words. Be encouraged by the resurrection. I think not only of the resurrection of Jesus, not only of the resurrection because of Jesus, but the resurrection to Jesus. Martin Luther is reputed to have said, if I knew the world would end tomorrow, I would plant an apple tree. And what that means is that there's life after this one. It's coming. But according to what we just read, it might not be immediate. When we compare the other writings of Paul, 1 Thessalonians and also 1 Corinthians 15, and again, we only go off of biblical text. His position on death looks a lot more like the deceased go to sleep at death and then await their bodily resurrection at the return of Jesus Christ. All of that to say, the point is we don't know where we go when we die. But we do know what, and that what is resurrection. And to be honest, that's really all I feel comfortable sharing on the subject. I have way more questions than I do answers on this. And maybe in a different setting, maybe one-on-one -on -one over coffee or something like that, I can share with you some of the readings and, and thoughts of different theologians and scholars. And I'd encourage you to do your own research. But this is what I am confident saying from the pulpit. What happens to us when we die? Eventually, resurrection. I don't know where, and I don't know how it will look, but I do know we will be with Jesus, and I do know we will be resurrected. This idea that we're just waiting for heaven, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, that's bad theology. That's not biblical. The lyrics in that old hymn say, if heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? Uh, wait for the resurrection? And why is it so important to discuss this? Even though we really don't have a firm grasp on it, why is it important that we discuss it? Well, like we said, if the past, the present, and the future are all connected, then what's going to happen in the future affects right now. It changes how we see the world. Because if you think that what you do here doesn't matter, that this place is all going to burn and all I need to do is burn out the clock until Jesus comes back, that's an annihilationist viewpoint. And I think if that's your viewpoint, you might misunderstand your purpose in following Jesus. You say, well, what is my purpose in following Jesus? It's to spread resurrection. Not just the message of resurrection, not just the fact that resurrection is possible in your own life, but that there's a resurrection to come. That changes how we understand what we do here. We have a high calling on us. So we're not just witnessing to people so that they turn and don't burn, so that they can go to heaven, whatever that means. We are inviting people to be a part of the past, present, and future resurrection that God has done, is doing, and will do in the future. And isn't that so much more inviting of a message? Come, be a part of resurrection. I believe that Jesus really resurrected, and because of that, there is resurrection possible in my own life, and I'm not really sure what it looks like in the future, but I am going to be with Jesus. Isn't that so inviting? 
Again, summing this up, the resurrection is a past event changing present circumstances that have future implications. And we don't often pause and think about this idea of resurrection. Yeah, we talk about it at Easter time. We talk about the past aspect. When we have funerals, we touch on the future. And I feel like because we're so busy, we miss the resurrection that's happening in our own lives. So I want us to try something in our closing moments. Sermons are often oratory exercises. Someone speaks, you listen. They're like spiritual TED Talks. And that engages the left hemisphere of your brain, the part with language and logic and analysis and facts. And that's great. But we've got two sides of our brain. The right side engages creativity, art, music, feelings, emotions. And I want us to attempt to be holistic in how we understand this concept of resurrection using our entire brains as best we can. So we're going to play a piece of music, and I'd invite you to close your eyes and just think about these ideas of resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection that happens in our life, and the resurrection that we're called to. When the music's over, I'll just ask for a moment of silence, and then I'll close us in prayer.
Lord Jesus, thank you for the resurrection. What you did in conquering death and how that power of the event transforms our present reality and what you will do in our lives in the future. May we see with fresh eyes the role we get to play in the resurrection. That you choose us as conduits to help spread and share the power and the message of hope in the resurrection. We pray these things in the power of the name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.